So tonight is, um, today, is the, it's all over the news, it's the 20th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. It's been all over the news and all over in uh, Europe. They're celebrating it. And I remember, I don't know, it actually touches me really a lot. I don't know why. I was never even at the Berlin Wall. But <clears throat> I remember the time when that happened. 20 years ago, we were in the middle of teaching a, a three-month retreat. So I, I remember it really clearly. And the sense of it being so unexpected so unknown how it just kind of happened all of a sudden and actually by chance, as we find out now. So in honor of that, I want to talk tonight about really that anything can happen. You know, I want to talk about faith and confidence in the mystery of unknowing, because we don't know. It turns out that I just read this now that the night, the day that the night that the wall kind of, that they took away the restrictions and people started just going across, it hadn't been planned at all. The East German government hadn't planned it, but there'd been a lot of demonstrations for days and the government was shaky and the leader had been taken out. But uh, a spokesman for the government was speaking on the radio and they heard it in East and West Berlin. And he said with, without realizing that it wasn't true and he didn't have the authorization, he said that the travel restrictions were going to be lifted on East Berlin and West Berlin people going across the wall so that you could go across. And when the, person, the, the interviewer said when, he said immediately. And it turned out he didn't have the authority to say that at all. But everybody heard him on the radio and that was it. They just all ran to the wall and started you know, going back and that was, that was it. That was the end of it. So you never know. You never know. It's just so amazing. So that's what I want to talk about. Sada, the word in Pali that we translate as faith or confidence, really, it is in um, the Abhidhamma well, manual, sort of, of the mental states. It's the first of the beautiful mental factors and the list of all the beautiful mental factors. And we tend to think of faith, or maybe you don't. I tend to think of faith just in the normal uh, English way of speaking, of having faith or confidence in something, in something particular, in a person, in uh, a belief system, or in knowing something is true, some kind of stable, static thing or understanding that we can rely on and have faith in. And of course, that's not the meaning of faith at all. Sadha is, uh, is, as all mental factors, active, changing, arising and passing in a moment. And it has the characteristic of placing faith, or one of the translations I like, I don't know how accurate it is, of the Pali Sadha, is of placing one's heart upon. Really just this active, it manifests as confidence, as resolution, as the energy to do, as Asaira Upandita likes to say it is, as um, non-fogginess, to set forth, as one might set forth to cross a flood. These are all things I'm reading from the manual of Abhidhamma. So it has this energy, this brightness. It has the, the uh, function of, now I'm talking for me, it uplifts and brightens 
the heart and mind. That's really the quality of faith. But it's easy for us to think of it as uh, an intellectual in something to give me stability and safety. So it does give us stability and safety, but not in something. So that's the way I want to look at it tonight, the sense of the quality of confidence, but not in a deluded way. So this is where we come into, as you know, how the Buddha often spoke about his teachings as being to practice his teachings is as if to swim against the flow of the stream of society and culture, or against the flow of the stream of the own, our own um, so-called personality habit patterns, ways that we think. And this is where it gets really interesting, where really anything can happen, where we don't know. How we perceive and think about things. Sort of what I was I talked a little bit last week about insight being a shift in how we perceive an experience or something, and that shifts how we think about it. But how we think about the world and ourselves, how we perceive, is so often uh, taken for granted, we're so used to it, that we don't even notice those, those inverted perceptions I talked about, where we perceive what is in constant flux and change as being unstable and, and, and solid. And that's just so normal, normal because habitual, that we don't even think about it. And we don't even recognize what are the ideas, the views, the constructions, the explanations that are sort of in the back of our mind. It's the way Utejaniya likes to talk about it. What's the ideas that are working in the back of the mind that are actually guiding the way we experience and describe our life, ourselves, and our practice? So we all generally in the world, the reason the, our, our awakening practice is like swimming upstream is because there's a, a sort of a um, accepted understanding of things, you know, that things, things change but only later, and that of course there is a self, and, and if we can get more pleasant things, we'll be happy, you know, that kind of stuff, and that I have a, a certain personality, whatever our beliefs are. And awareness practice, our awakening practice of just exploring what's happening, what's arising and passing in this moment, is very much a stepping outside of our comfortable, comfortable because familiar, maybe not even pleasant, but familiar, stepping outside of our comfortable views and explanations and understandings of the world. And not stepping into another one that we're creating. Years ago, I was with um, Punjaji in India for quite some time, and he used to always say, pick up your foot and don't put it down again. And I used to never think, what the heck is he talking about? And I said, pick up your foot out of one construction and don't put it down in another. Can we just have confidence in that mystery of not knowing that alive, awake, you know, vibrant, fragile moment. So just to give an example of how the way we 
we're used to thinking the ideas in the background that we don't even know we have, how they color our perceptions. I'll tell you a little story. I was in Burma last um, winter and with uh, several friends, we were traveling to um, two or three different nunneries and monasteries and offering some um, uh, food dana to villagers who had been, were still suffering from the cyclone of the year before. And as you do in these things in Burma, you take a lot of photos. There's always a lot of photos of giving and receiving, and it was a whole big thing. <clears throat> so when we got back to the monastery where we were staying, one of the two of the friends, both were nuns, uh, Western women, and one of them put her, her photos from her camera on her computer, and this woman had uh, been a nun for many, many years in Burma. And so even though Western, she, Burma's a very faith-based culture, and by faith I mean in this way, faith in the teachings of the Buddha, in the cosmology as it's described in the suttas of different realms of celestial beings and human beings and suffering beings. And so that's really was kind of like working in the background for her. So she put her photos on the computer. There were a lot of them, a lot of photos. But, but several of them, more than one, quite a few, in the same kind of locations, had some places where they're these really perfectly round, brilliant spots that look like spots of light on, on some of us, like right on some of our bodies over some of us. And I kind of said, I just kind of said, oh, that's interesting. And this woman said, oh, those are Davis. Those are celestial beings. Not like maybe or I think. That's what it is. Went and showed the Sayadaw. Then our other friend, also a nun, but with a scientific background, very scientific mind. And immediately she said, those aren't Davis. That's like a little kind of moisture that collects on the lens and it's just refracting the light. And I thought, well, who knows? You know, I don't know, either one. It'll be interesting. So I got home here and put my pictures from a different camera in. And in the same scene, but the pictures were different, the same kind of spots of light, you know, in different ways. But I thought, hmm, who knows? So first, I just love that space, who knows? And notice how our mind likes to come down somewhere. And then I, I, I told this at IMS last month, and it got to be quite fun because it engendered a whole kind of, not exactly debate, but different experiences. So one, um, one guy uh, who works over there immediately, oh, there was another photo this summer from a teacher, Vipassana teacher meeting in England. And of many photos, this one photo was sent around on email of three people, three of the teachers who were kind of directing that day. One of them was Ajahn Suchito. And on him, there was this exact same round, bright spot. And sending around the email, the people sending said, well, what could this be? And I just didn't go there. I just left it alone. But later, they said, he said, oh, that often happens in photos of him. So I mentioned that. So then this, this friend who works over at IMS, he said, that's ridiculous. That's not Davis. You just have to look in that photo, and you can see there's a glass of water, and the light's refracting off that water, and that's what it is. I said, OK. Kathleen, who works here, said, I've got to show you my photo of all the devas in this grove at Sayada Utejaniya's. And she brings me a photo of, it looks like the, you know, the Jaitavana grove or something. And so it's all these trees, and it's kind of dark, and there's all these monks and people, and these, these spots of light all over the place. <laughs> and then, just to top, I know I'm going on, but I, I'm enjoying it. <laughs> just as it happens, 
the scientific-minded friend happened to be visiting for a few days recently. And she told me, she said, I don't know, I may be coming around to the Deva view because I was just in Tiruvannamalai, which is uh, Ramana Maharshi's ashram. She was there and on the August full moon, on the full moon, a few Indian pilgrims come to walk around the mountain. A few like two and a half million, I'm not exaggerating, two and a half million people are walking around that mountain. <laughs> she said it's like completely solid wall-to-wall -wall people around the whole mountain the whole night. It's a trip. India is so much fun, you know. That's just like a few people show up in India. And um, so they did that. They walked around and then she said, I just went out and took some photos. There were no lights. There was nothing you could say was refraction. And she looked at it. She said, all over the place, all over the place there were these around. So who knows? And I love that. Can we just, that space, that vibrant, open, connected space that doesn't have to land in explanation and knowing. It doesn't have to shut any doors. And you know, there might be, there might be one explanation that's accurate. That's not really what's important. It's that quality of awakened, connected interest that doesn't need to kind of limit the experience by knowing what things are. So this is really the opening into confidence and faith, not in some explanation, but the, the confidence and the trust to be able at times or willing to open into that vibrant place of unknowing, which means to be able or willing to be just totally here, to place one's heart upon reality as it's manifesting in this moment without ever knowing what's next or without needing to have a whole explanation about it. As Ajahn Sumedho says, and I'll be quoting from him quite a bit from this one article if I can find it. <laughs> if I can't find it, then I won't. Right here. Hmm. I put it somewhere special so I could find it again. Here it is. Awareness is not about making value judgments about our thoughts or emotions or actions or speech. Awareness is simply about knowing these things fully, that they are what they are at this moment. It's radical, but just at this moment, things are as they are. Awareness is just putting one's whole being, really, energy, whatever you want to say here, without needing to evaluate, to judge, to self-reference, to understand. So it's really, really helpful and interesting in our practice as we just keep noticing moment after moment what's happening to recognize the ideas, the views, the self-judgments, the expectations, the assumptions that are working in the background, so to speak. I think this is why Ajahn, not Ajahn, Sayadaw, Utejiniya puts so much emphasis on the right attitude or having the right information. I'm just saying here, let's just notice what information we're believing, what information we're using to drive the bus, where we're trying to take it, as if we even know 
because that's going to skew our perception. It's going to skew what we're trying to make happen. It's going to warp if we're not aware. We can be aware of the views. That's fine. Of course we have views and opinions and explanations. That's not a problem when we just know it. But when we don't recognize and take it for the truth, that's when we're running up against the brick wall. So this is a kind of actually a skillful attention with thought. Actually, when you, when you feel that you're struggling, when you feel you're in confusion, here, here in your practice, it's not going well, or you're feeling you're failing, or you're feeling discouraged, you might just stop and actually look at, for a bit, the content of the thoughts that are feeding that mental state, that are convincing you, or that are giving you such good evidence that you're basically a loser. You're doing it all wrong. You know, it's hopeless. Instead of just saying, no, bad, I know that's not true. Sometimes just say, I know it's not true, but let's see actually what it is that's not true. What am I believing here? And just for a short time, that kind of skillful investigation of thought can be quite interesting. So Maida gives the example, it's something like, we believe something like, I'm someone who grasps and has a lot of desires, a lot of aversion, a lot of self-judgment, and so I have to practice in order to get rid of these things. I have to practice in order to stop grasping. I'm somebody who has to do something to become enlightened in the future. You could probably agree with that, huh? <laughs> notice, just notice what we might be thinking without needing to construct a new one. Notice how my mom goes, oh, that sounds bad, but it's really that. It's like this. It's all here right now, no matter, you know, just watch the mind that does that. The sense that somehow reality is somewhere else, freedom is somewhere else. We have to do something to get there, or we have to get rid of ourselves to see it, or whatever the heck we have going on back there. Just notice it. It's also interesting me, for, to me looking at how language both, um, it both can show us our limiting views and ideas and it also can reinforce the limiting views if we're not really aware of it. I've used this before, but I read a book about nonviolence. Um, I don't know when I read it, sometime. And the interesting, the, the part that stuck with me, the man writing it was just talking about the use of the word nonviolence, or in English, ahimsa in Hindi or Sanskrit, and how it's really in that word nonviolence, the operative word is violence. And the non, you know, that's the one that draws the attention. Non is like a negation of this thing, violence. And so in nonviolence, ahimsa is the same way. That's kind of like the reality, the, the main thing your mind goes to is violence, right? He gives the example, what if the only word for war were non-peace? Doesn't it just, it just shifts it, you know? Oh, there's non-peace is happening in Zimbabwe now. You know, and then just can get a sense, well, maybe it doesn't do it for you, but for me, it's just this sense of what if the norm is really other than what we've been assuming. And we don't even know what we've been assuming. It's where the attention gets drawn. In nonviolence, the attention gets drawn to violence. In non-peace, the attention gets drawn to peace. 
So in this, in this possibility of having confidence in the unknowing, in the not knowing, in the not needing to land, just to hold the possibility that rather than I'm someone who has to get rid of the kalesas, the defilements, in order to reach nibbana, that, and it would seem to be true from our experience that greed and hatred and delusion and the hindrances, that's the norm. Of course, we have to struggle to get rid of them. And there is, we know, you know, maybe we, we, we buy into not that nibbana is somewhere else, but pure mind and heart, the nature of mind is here. But really, I can't experience it very much. I know it's here, but I'm still uh, hopeless and can't get there. Even it's here. I know it's here. I still can't get here. I'm somewhere else, whatever, you know. But just what if we could just, just imagine shifting the paradigm. Just imagine that really the natural peace and ease of mind and body is the norm, is the truer, more real experience. We, what if we're just so not in the habit of noticing that we absolutely don't notice? Not that there's something else to do, but we could actually learn to shift our refuge, to shift where we really have confidence. And of course, we can't do this by willpower. And I'm not even, I'm just saying this is a what if, okay? What if? Don't land in any, this is how it is. But just what if our path is not to get rid of anything, not even to get rid of our so-called false sense of self, is not to change our personality, but simply to discover, rediscover a shift of refuge, a shift of interest a shift of what we really place our confidence, our heart on, from fighting with or having faith in, really, all the difficult aspects, the so-called me, 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 to just actually recognizing and trusting natural peace and ease. No big explosive experience am I talking about. Just what... um, Ajahn Buddha Dasa calls, and it's a little, anyway, he calls it Nibbana for everyone. He's kind of, uh, you know, Ajahn Buddha Dasa was a very, very, one of the most famous forest monks in Thailand in the last century. He died in the 90s. I, uh, I spent some time there. When I was a nun, I spent some time with him. And he liked to be a little bit, for Thailand, a little bit, you know, poking. And so he's talking in this one article, he's talking, Nibbana in, uh, in Thai means cool. And so he's saying that Nibbana, or freedom, liberation, the liberation of non-clinging, he said it's the coolness that results from the extinction of the defilements. Defilements are greed, hatred, and confusion, right? Greed, hatred, delusion. And so he says, where there's this extinction of the defilements, there's what may be called nibbana, whose meaning is cool. And then he goes on to say that, of course, if you look at the greed, hatred, delusion, they're mental factors. They are compounded, the sankharas, compounded things. And so they come into being through conditions and pass away through conditions. In other words, they're just as impermanent as everything else. An impermanent, remember, doesn't mean they come into being and last a long, long time. 
your whole life and then go away when you die. No. <laughs> Impermanence means arising and passing in every moment. And the mind that wants permanence, that's shockingly scary. But in the mind that's just, wow, this moment's arising and passing. It's like, it's like uh, someone was, was telling me they had looked at one of these slow motion, what do you call it, time-lapse photography of a flower growing and blooming, and how you can see from nothing the, the stem comes up and it's slowly growing, and there's the leaf and the flower, and then it's decaying. And there's never one moment that's static. And there's never one moment you can say, now that's the leaf, that's the flower. It's always. Each moment is a death and a birth, a death and a birth, a death and a birth. That's impermanence. And so opening into that, is, it's always a mystery. Because no matter what we think we know, we never know what's going to happen. No one knew the Berlin Wall was going to come down that night. It's, no one knows what's going to happen in the next moment. Every time we sit down or walk, you never know what's going to happen the next second in your mind, do you? We like to think we do, for good or for bad, but we like to think we know. We hate it when we find out we have no control. But if we could just say, yeah, I don't have to have control. It's just exhausting trying to control this anyway. We just dance in the flower, growing and dying. How would I get onto that? Um, yeah, he says, so he says the defilements, they are rising and passing like anything. And since the, ex- the defilements, when they arise, when the conditions aren't present, they become extinct. And although this extinction is temporary, maybe even momentary, in other words, the coolness takes place temporarily, he says, this phenomenon has the real sense of nibbana, even though it's not the lasting one. The real sense of coolness. And I like that, just, it's cool. He said, the fever of the defilements, anyone can see that if the defilement, and I, I know that's not such a great word, but think of greed, hatred, and delusion, confusion, meing about everything. Anyone can see that if they were with us all day and night, every second without ceasing, who could ever stand it? He said, under such conditions, living beings would either die or become insane. And he's not exaggerating. He says, so let us consider well that these periodical coolness, these what he calls nibbana for everyone, these moments of what I would call purity of heart and mind, chitta that's free in any moment of greed, hatred, and delusion. These moments happen many, many, many times in a day. He says, we survive because of the nourishment of these moments of coolness, of nibbana. This is the nourishment, he says, that keeps beings alive in terms of the mental realm. We couldn't stand it otherwise. And so just notice when we have periods, and I would say mentally, of feeling relaxed, refreshed, cool, no matter what's happening. It's not about what's happening. It's just that quality of coolness, non-burning from greed, hatred, and self-delusion in the mind. So maybe that's much more natural than we give it credit for. We're just so interested in all the stuff that's happening that we don't really stop to notice. 
It's not, you know, whoop de doo enough. It's not great enough. It doesn't, for one thing, in any way reaffirm me. And that, in some ways, might be the biggest habit we've got going at all. So some of the assumption Ajahn Sumedho said, oh, right, so I'm going to say, our practice then can become re-recognizing, rediscovering, and learning to have faith, to place confidence in these simple moments of coolness, in the awareness that allows the recognition of these moments of coolness, no matter what's happening in the mind or the body, it doesn't matter. And as well, then a lot of our so-called practice also becomes, with this awareness, as Samedo mentions, of not judging, not making up a value judgment, noticing the assumptions, the stories, the ways that we get sidetracked and confused again when we don't notice or trust at all natural ease and peace of body and mind and get reabsorbed, re-caught up again in sense experience, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, thinking, and emotions, and making up a big story of me about any of it. And this is, it's also in a way a doing, it's a way of looking. As I, I, I said in an interview the other day, it just came into my mind, Master Sheng Yen, who was a wonderful Taiwanese Chan master who just died this January, really a, a wonderful man. Anyway, he said one time that uh, our, our meditation practice is an illusion, but it's an illusion that we use to replace our other illusions. So not to say is no, that sitting and looking and watching the thoughts and emotions, some, that's also just something that's happening that comes and goes and changes, nothing to hold to. But that illusion replaces our other illusions. And then it's like even the Buddha said that his teachings are the raft across the stream. When you get across the screen, stream, you don't need to keep carrying the raft on your back. But we use it. We know how to use it. So our practice can become that rather than a thing in itself to succeed at or a thing in itself our practice to achieve the result of getting rid of ourself you know, or anything. Just awareness. So Ajahn Sumedho, I've done a few retreats with him, and I've found his way of talking just very simple but quite profound. It's been very helpful to me. And this one time he was meeting with a few uh, Spirit Rock teachers, and he was talking about just a little bit about things he'd noticed in teaching Westerners. And he said he was talking about how strong our belief is, Western, he was talking particularly about Western educated people, because I guess he did a lot of his practice under Ajahn Chah in Thailand, he speaks Thai, he taught in Thailand, Thai people for many years. But he says, um, you know, that we, well, all of us, we create ourselves, our sense of ourselves with our thoughts over and over and over. We're creating who we think we are, and we can't create a peaceful self. So you can take that as a challenge. See if with our thoughts we can create a peaceful self. But what he says is that, and it certainly seems to be true in my limited experience with myself and people I've talked to, 
that, that for us, the thoughts and the stories about our personalities, our personalities are so central, so strong in the way that we view ourselves, in the way that we construct our, our assumptions in the background about life so that everything becomes so personal. Such a sense of me succeeding or failing or everything's about me. And he said, Ajahn Sumedho, that in his experience, he sees the biggest hindrance for Westerners in terms of um, awakening, in terms of trusting their uh, insights, is the self-doubt in their insights, in their own insights and deliberation. I would say self-doubt into these moments of coolness into the fact that that's even true. I can't say how many people I've talked to who will say, well, I had this experience 10 years ago or yesterday, but now, you know, everything's back. The personality's strong. I really doubt it. I'm the same, you know, jerky person I was. That couldn't have been true. And he says it. He thinks that Westerners doubt this because our personalities are so strong and believable. And we give so much emphasis and so much belief to our personalities and our thoughts and our ideas about ourselves that we get so caught back into them. I would say it's like that's actually could be where we put our confidence in our personality. We may hate it, but when the chips are down, what do you really believe? What's the voice you're really believing? You know, there's a just peace, just isness, just the rain falling and the crickets and the tea and your back hurts and it's just this and there's no reference point and there's no me. And then I come rushing back and my back hurts and why can't I be with it and I could before and now I can't. And which do we believe? That was a nice moment. It was an aberration. This is now back what I know. This is where we're comfortable. And we are comfortable like putting on an old cloak and it stinks, you know, and it has holes in it. We don't like it, but it's just so comfortable. And at least I'm here in it. And so I just, it's, it's really interesting how to just trust in that not knowing, to even see it's possible not to take our personalities so seriously. An example, I don't no, if it works for you, to me, it, it just does a different ways of holding. This is, um, again, I was in Burma and uh, helping to teach a retreat with Sayadaw Ulakana. So he teaches in, in strict Mahasi style where you're noting every moment of experience. This was a retreat to Westerners, but the man translating was a, a Burmese man, a friend. And um, so Sayadaw Ulakana was saying, like when fear arises or when anger arises, you just note it, fear, 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 and in three notes, it'll go away. And then, you know, the Ulamang was just translating, and then later, um, when the Saida's not around, then the other teacher and I would do questions and answers, and one of the guys raised his hand, he goes, it doesn't go away when I note three times, you know, and we said, of course it does, you know, it doesn't always go away when you note three, you know, the, the rap we would give here, you just explore so then Ula Monk said to me later, privately, he said, oh, I was so interested to hear what that man asked, you know, and what you said, that it's not how Sayadaw says and doesn't go away, and it was very helpful what you said. And I said, well, what about you? He said, oh, it doesn't go away for us in three notes either. <laughs> I said, well, what do you do? He goes, oh, we just say, oh, well, never mind. <laughs> 
I thought, well, that's refreshing. We laugh. That's like, it couldn't appeal. Oh, it doesn't do. The teacher said, this is how it's supposed to do, and I do, and it doesn't work. Oh, well, never mind. You know, not so likely. <laughs> because we are so, you know, God, I get it. My personality. You know? And it's just, it's just really interesting. But, not holding to the assumption, not being caught back into our personality doesn't mean denying it or hiding it or not believing or not seeing those thoughts. It just means being aware. This is Ajahn Sumedho again. He's talking about non-grasping. And he says, you know, it can just be another statement that we grasp and hold on to, non-grasping, liberation. You know? And how often do people come and say, oh, I'm letting go of this, I'm letting go of that. I'm highly suspicious, I have to say, of the, and in my own mind too, of the phrase letting go. If I'm letting go, forget about it. I'm not letting go. I'm throwing it away because I don't want it. That's different. It's just letting be with awareness. It's going to go by itself, whatever we do. So anyway, he says there's the catch-22. No matter how hard you try to make sense out of non-grasping, I should not grasp, you end up in total confusion because of the limitations of language and conception. You have to go beyond language and perception, and the only way to go beyond thinking and emotional habit is through awareness of them. The way to go beyond them is into them with awareness, through awareness of thought, through awareness of emotion, through awareness of the body, without value judgment, right? Without making a me out of it. The island that you cannot go beyond, which is being used as a metaphor for nibbana, is the metaphor for this state of being awake and aware, as opposed to the concept of becoming awake and aware. So sadha, faith, confidence, it's really the confidence just in the moment to be awake and aware, no matter what's arising in this moment. It just doesn't matter. So we use these, the thoughts about ourselves, the stories, our personalities, seem so fixed so solid. As Sony Rinpoche said one time, he said, um, we've created a cage for ourselves out of our emotions and our sense of personality. And here we sit, day in and day out. And doesn't it feel like that sometimes? <laughs> Just sitting in this cage of emotions and personality. But the thing is, it can feel we're sitting here only because we're not noticing how thought is recreating it over and over, and this is the assumption that we're taking to be true. I have to get out of this cage. And as Ajahn Sumedho says, the way beyond is simply awareness in. This emotion is just like this. This thought is just like this. And another assumption, and this you all know, but I just wanted to point to it again, that really when you, when you break down 
maybe not to the absolute bottom line, but when we start really looking, when I start looking at the thoughts and storyline of my personality and my past, but really it's all happening right now. When I look at the personality patterns that catch me, means I'm suffering or reacting or not liking or wanting or whatever. No matter how complex the story may become, when I notice how it begins in a moment, I'll say almost always just because I'm leery of ever saying always, it comes down to the movement of greed in the mind or of dosa, which is some form of aversion or fear in the mind, and or some form of confusion. There's always confusion when there's greed or dosa in the mind, although there can be confusion without greed or dosa. Confusion and the sense of meing and myeing. And that so often that simply starts up from an experience of a pleasantness or an unpleasantness or a neutrality that isn't noticed. And that is like so simple and basic that it almost feels like too simple and embarrassing. There's no way my whole complex suffering personality could just be reactions of thought to pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Excuse me, but I don't want to break down the whole human experience to that. Much more you know, than that. Okay, so that's a thought, that's a concept. Never mind, just explore and see. It's fascinating. So you all know this, but we can just start noticing again how I'm in some whole story about me and feeling good and I had this good interaction with this person and blah, blah, blah. And I tune in and there's just a memory of a conversation and this pleasant feeling comes up with it. That's it, folks. Pleasant feeling coming up. Yes, me. It fulfills me, it reaffirms me, it's all about me. Unpleasant, just the same. I mean, of course, it can be something as obvious as a physical unpleasant pain, a thought that comes up, a memory that has an unpleasant connotation, an unpleasant feeling with it, something even so subtle we hardly notice it. And into a whole world. And, and I'm, not, I'm not at all meaning to belittle or dismiss are really deep and profound um, traumas and personality habits and memories that we really, they, they come up too strong to notice. You can't say you're having huge post-traumatic stress. It doesn't work to say, oh, it started from an unpleasant. Let me just notice the unpleasant. The energy of the emotion has gotten way too strong by then. So often we can't notice on this level. But on a retreat, when you're here for a long time, there will be times you can notice on this level. And then it's really interesting. And once I've seen for myself certain habits that brought up a lot of fear and suffering over my life, and now when they start to come, when I start to feel it's a kind of primal terror, I can say, oh, I recognize it. And whereas before I'd go into the stories in the past or what do I do about it or what's wrong with me or I've practiced all these years and this is still coming and my practice is no good and I need to do the other kind of blah. No, oh, primal terror. I can feel it. It's unpleasant. feels like I'm going to die. That's it. That's oh, It's a feeling. It's an emotion. Vedana. It comes and goes and I know that. I know that. That's all that's happening. 
And when we don't see that, which is a lot of the time, then it, it goes into the stories and something about me. And whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or really neutral, it somehow morphs into what does it say about me. And that sense of me is just so, well, so reaffirming, right? That often when, maybe not often, but sometimes when there is that sense of just the coolness, of just the isness of things, or in a particular experience that's maybe been really difficult, but it's a strong sense of me, a strong personality pattern, and I suddenly see, oh, it's just this, just unpleasant fear feeling. It can feel so odd, so unfamiliar, that we're, we're kind of at sea. You know, we don't know what to do. And we're not so comfortable. This is, again, can we be at ease in that not knowing? And part of how our sense of self reconnects, re-comes back so strong, the personality, we buy back into it so strong, is because we're in the, but if I'm not this fearful person, who the heck am I? We may not even say that, but that's the feeling. Oh, so back again. Better this loser, you know, than nothing. And if there's nothing, you know, we go off into that fear of the, of the unknown. So this entrancement, entrancement with our thoughts, with the stories, with sense of self, with the, it's so deep that good means it's pleasant. It's so back there, so in the stuff that's working in the background that if it's painful, scary, unpleasant, it's wrong. It's bad. No way freedom can be here with this scary, unpleasant experience. It's pleasant? Well, then I'm really on the way. The more pleasant it is, the closer I am. And neutral, neutral we just don't notice. But the other aspect of neutrality is making it all about me, sense of self. And so this, this cycling, this needing to land somewhere over and over and over is really samsara. Just the creation of, but it's a creation of sense of self just in every moment. It's not some solid, steady state thing. And when we, we start to be able to have the faith to begin to shift the refuge, to shift the refuge from the seeming comfort of the patterns to the willingness to just, okay, don't know what's happening now, to just surrender into this moment. It takes faith. It takes confidence. It takes a willingness to trust. Two things I want to read. One from Thich Nhat Hanh. Understanding does not arise as the result of thinking. If only we could believe that. It is the result of the long process of conscious awareness. Sometimes understanding can be translated into thoughts, but often thoughts are too rigid and limited to carry much understanding. So in this way, talking about understanding not as a piece of conceptual knowledge, but that confidence, that trust, and as he says, the long process of conscious awareness, just meaning surrendering a conscious awareness into just now, 
over and over and over with no goal, with no so that, with no conscious awareness in order to understand. That's already too much. Just dying into this moment. And it takes trust. It takes learning to trust. Tomato again. The principle of an awareness that you can't get beyond, it's very simple, very direct, and you cannot conceive it. You have to trust it. You have to trust the simple ability that we all have to be fully present and fully awake and begin to recognize the grasping and the ideas we've taken on about ourselves, about the world around us, about our thoughts and perceptions and feelings. We have to trust. There's no way we can think our way into it or do our way into it or remember our way into it. Every moment is a moment requiring active trust, surrender, opening to this moment. This is really what we call confidence in awareness. And it's hard because of our discomfort with not knowing, because of our deeply habituated, what seems like a need for self-affirmation, know that I'm doing it right, that I'm getting somewhere, that I'm not just, I'm just, you know, being aware every moment, but I'm not getting more concentrated, I'm not having huge insights, I'm just being aware as I'm fluffing around all day. You know, it's really hard to trust. I'm not saying you should just fluff around all day, but <laughs> you can if you want, as long as you're aware. You can fluff around all day and watch your mind. That's okay. Because the long process of conscious awareness, reality is already real. It reveals itself. We don't have to figure it out. So it's hard because of the the unreliability, the untrustworthiness. This is from Mei-Chi Kao. There's a book about her. She was a nun in Thailand from the last century, supposedly an arhat. I mean, who knows? Anyway, well, no one knows. You can't know. (laughs) Everything that makes a person unique changes continually and eventually disintegrates. Each personality is constantly ceasing to be what it was and becoming something new. Notice that it doesn't cease and become nothing. It's ceasing and becoming something new constantly. These, those factors one tends to conceive of as self are impermanent and fleeting. Everything about bodily form and the mind's thoughts and feelings is without intrinsic stability and bound to, re- to dissolve. For that reason, clinging to body and mind is a major source of pain and suffering. And when we're just trusting in that, there's that freedom, that wakefulness of this present moment awareness. But when there's the clinging, that's scary. That's uncomfortable. Everything we conceive as me is in constant change and flux, and it's We're not used to hanging out in that not knowing. The habit is to look for something. And what we tend to look for is to go back to the assumptions, looking for stability, looking for what feels comfortable. 
Even Ajahn Sumedho, again in this conversation with the teachers, he gave an example that really, it really touched me. I don't know if I can convey it accurately, because he's always talking about absolute trust and confidence in this awareness, right, no matter what. Awareness, when he says, when I use a language, fear is like this, pain is like this, sense of self is like this, that's his language. Is like this is really awareness receiving. And there's nothing that arises that cannot be received in awareness, nothing. It's radical. So he's always talking about this. And for how long has he been doing this? 30 years, 35 years. And he described one period at his um, uh, monastery, Namaravati, some years ago. It was, and he's the head abbot of the whole scene. So it was an extremely difficult time interpersonally with the monks and the nuns. And there's all kinds of difficult stuff going on. And they were having meetings. And it's you know one of those horrible organizational dukkha kind of times. And he, he said it went on and on. And he, being the head abbot, and it was, was of course, the the organization is the focus of a lot of the blame and criticism and judgment. He said it was really, really hard for him. Because he says, like most people, he said, I really want to be appreciated. I want to be loved and respected. I don't want people hating me and blaming me and pointing the finger. And he said, and it really started to get very difficult for me. And it went on for some time. And then suddenly he, he realized is this faith. He said, I just made a resolution, a very clear resolution. He said, I absolutely determined. I made a determination to trust awareness and not my personality. And that, I just love that so strong because trusting his personality was getting sucked into the, oh, no, you know, like me, and this is too hard, and I can't do it. And absolute determination to trust awareness. And that doesn't change the dynamics of what's happening interpersonally. It completely changes where he put his refuge, the whole experience, the fact that freedom really is available here and now. That's that quality of sada. To me, faith is like, it's kind of like love. It's a sense of, it's like uh, putting my heart onto the present moment. Like, the way it says to me, it's like feeling like I'm living in the heart of life instead of a little bit removed trying to reorganize it the way I want or figure it out. Just, just die into this moment just like it is. No reservations, not needing to understand. Byron Katie calls that loving what is. So I'll just end with this from one last quotation from Ajahn Sumedho. As one begins to realize or recognize non-grasping as the way, emotionally one can feel quite frightened by this. It can seem like a kind of annihilation is taking place. All that I think I am in the world, all that I regard as stable and real, starts falling apart. And this can be frightening. But if we have the faith to continue bearing with these emotional reactions and simply allow things that arise to cease, the emotional reactions, to appear and disappear according to their nature, then we find our stability, not in achievement or attaining, but in being, being awake, being aware. So let's just sit quietly for a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.